This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. At the Home Depot, we improve things. This holiday season, we've improved Black Friday. Instead of one day of crazy, we've lowered prices now and they'll stay low all season. From decorations to dishwashers, wreaths to ratchet sets. So sleep in. You're not going to miss Black Friday. Not one little bit. Black Friday improved. The best prices of the year already here at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details. Zenni offers prescription glasses starting at $6.95, as well as affordable sunglasses, blue blockers, and more. The best part? Try any frame, anywhere, with our 3D virtual try-on. Visit zenni.com today and change the way you buy glasses forever. Welcome to Raptors Endgame, a podcast where we talk with basketball media members about basketball. My name is Lucas Weiss, host of Raptors Endgame. And I'm pleased to be joined today by national basketball writer for NBA.com, as well as the host of the Hangtime podcast, Seku Smith. Seku, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lucas, man. Appreciate it. Uh, good, to, good to be with you from the bubble, my friend. Yeah, well, well, well I just asked you this off the air. You, you are reporting live from the Orlando bubble. I, I, I had one of your... One of your colleagues, Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe on the show a few days ago, and he was from the bubble as well. So I'm just curious right off the top, what's this experience been like for you reporting on basketball from Orlando? Oh, man. Well, it's funny. You mentioned Gary. I saw him last night at the the Clippers-Nuggets game. He came walking. It was the first time I've seen him. So he he welcomed me as one of the late arriving members of the media (laughs) contingent here. Um, It's unique, Lucas. It's... uh, it's a basketball lover's paradise, as I like to say, in terms of it's just basketball. Um, you know, you wake up, you see everybody out kind of working out, getting their exercise in, and then we're headed to the gym. Um, and when there were 22 teams playing, it was a huge, you know, day of basketball. Now it's concentrated down to just these two games a day. Um, but it's intense. Um, the the on-court competition is is every bit as high energy and competitive as it would be if we were in a normal playoff situation. So that part of it is very much what we're used to. The strange part is just how few people are in the building mm-hmm. and the fact that there's no crowd. Um, getting used to that that eerie silence, you know, like normally when there's noise and you know the DJs have done a great job last night the DJ was fantastic trying to keep the the energy in the building up and and playing music but there were moments when there's just no noise and or where there's you know the, the not the kind of loud noise you're used to and that that was strange um I imagine the players have gotten used to it by now after a couple months but it, it is definitely something that's different from our normal way of viewing basketball so it's it's been interesting in that respect, but I, I think the games have been fantastic. The competitiveness is through the roof, and that's really all we could ask for. 
No doubt, and I think coming into this, there was a gonna be, there was a bit of a question about whether the competitiveness would be at a high level given the long layoff for the players. But they've surpassed my expectations, and I'm sure the expectations of many, just in terms of the level of competition. But I would agree with you, Seku, that like when you see moments like last night, as this episode's being recorded, Kawhi Leonard's block with his middle finger on Jamal Murray, or OG Ananobi's buzzer beater. Like those are moments where the crowd would just go bananas, and now you just get silence. So it just must be strange for you as someone who's been around the league for so many years to see those moments and just not have that loud, raucous energy accompanying it. Yeah, Kawhi's block is a perfect example. Um, in the post game, the the reporters who are not here were asking about it because it must have gotten replayed over and over again on the broadcast. But in the in the arena, we looked and looked down at one of the monitors and said, "Okay," yeah. but like it wasn't, it didn't have the same effect in the building at the time. Michael Porter Jr. had a dunk on Montrezl Harrell that had a much bigger reaction in the building, like from the benches, from the family section. Um, you know, everybody kind of, you know, lean back in their seat when it happened. Like, wow, the block didn't have the same effect in the building. But then after I got back to the, you know, to my hotel and and looked at the replay over and over again, I thought, holy, you know, that's why it was such a big deal, you know, in the postgame um, when people were asking Doc and, and all the uh, Clippers players about it. Um, you know, and it's strange. They, I kept hearing people say that Kawhi struggled or he didn't have a very good game. And I'm going, is that what it looked like on TV? Because in the building, he didn't score like, you know, he didn't get his 32 points or whatever that he's been getting in the playoffs. But he certainly didn't look like he struggled or had a bad game. Um, Paul George played fantastic. And, you know, it's been rare in this postseason to see Kawhi not be the leading scorer and offensive catalyst for uh, the Clippers. But yeah, that that play to me perfectly encapsulates what it's like being down here and that what is a big deal outside of the bubble doesn't always look that way when you're right there in the midst of it. Do you think, CQ, that your reporting has been altered because of this, because there's, you know, it's such an unprecedented situation? Or do you think that because you're there in person, you have a bit of an advantage per se compared to others that are reporting virtually just because you're there with everyone else there and you get to report and create a scene with your stories that maybe not someone that's writing on the playoffs about a series can't just because they're reporting from their from their home in, in wherever city, whatever country compared to you in Orlando. Yeah, I think our ability being here to kind of describe the scene and give people a feel for the, the mood and the temperature in the building is there. Um, I don't think our access is any better. Um, mm. You know, the zoom calls that, that everybody can be a part of are the only media access you really have. Um, you know, you, somebody can give you a nod or you can kind of acknowledge somebody, but that's really it. It's not, it's not like they're allowing us to, you know, do our normal walk around, interview a guy, stand at a locker, have a conversation that is not a part of the structure of what's going on here. Uh, but I think it's a challenge, a great challenge for us to try and figure out how to tell the stories that are going on down here 
without the normal access that forces you to maybe step outside of your comfort zone as a reporter to uh, be a little more creative in how you're trying to craft a story or, you know, a piece and, and explain it in a way that conveys the fact that, you know, you're, you're looking at it from, from an intimate view as opposed to just trying to craft a scene from afar. Uh, but, you know, we've, I think it's some of the challenges we've all had in recent years in terms of access and how differently uh, the league is, is to cover. Now, when I first started covering the league, you know, 20 years ago, whatever, I, I used to go and stand in the Indiana Pacers locker room and for as long as I wanted to, right? Mm. PR didn't kick me out. I'd stand in there and players would be finishing up. You kind of sit and listen to stories, share some stories, interview somebody. You, you could spend so much more time interacting with the players, you know, uh, without tons of cameras around. You know, that was one of the benefits of being a beat writer. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's just forcing us out of our comfort zone, which is a good thing. I mean, I think it's good to make us change up the way we do things and, and how we want to approach it is – Maybe it gives us some fresh perspective to share. You said off the top that it's a basketball paradise in Orlando with so many games going on. Now that there's only four series left in the NBA playoffs, are you assigned to a particular series or are you sort of jumping around a different series depending on a particular story? Um, before I got down here, I was I was locked in on the Clippers mm. in their first round series against Dallas and then at the start of this conference semifinal against Denver. The next couple of days, though, to like today I'm going to both games, the uh, Bucks and Heat, and then the Lakers and Rockets. I'll be, I'll be going to all the games here and reporting basically on what's going on down here. Um, we have a great staff at NBA.com. Um, Michael C. Wright, John Schumann, Steve Ashburner, and Sean Powell, who was here. I, we kind of tagged out um, on, in terms of bubble duty. He'll, he'll be, you know, kind of covering – locking in on a series from afar and you know this that gives the person who's here on our staff obviously an opportunity to get at the stories that you can't get mm-hmm. from outside the bubble so yeah it'll be uh, it'll be kind of a trade-off I'm still these next couple of days I'll still be writing and focusing on like on, on, on the Clippers and Nuggets until that series ends um, but then as we move into the conference finals I'll be doing east and west conference finals and focusing on strictly what's going on down here as this episode is being recorded, it comes off the Toronto Raptors debacle in Game 5, losing to the Boston Celtics, where the Raptors are now facing elimination for the first time since last year in the second round in Game 7. Seku, I don't know if you've had a chance to follow much of this series, but what are just your impressions now as we head into the elimination games? Obviously, Boston looked great in Game 5, but... It feels like to me, look, you know, each game is independent. And, you know, if the Raptors play like they did in games three and four, particularly game four, they may have a chance to force this to a game seven. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, I think, these games are are unique entities unto themselves because of the the static environment and the circumstance. Um, But it's tough. I think once you get five games deep into a playoff series – I don't care where you play. You could be playing at the local Y. You could be playing on the moon. <laughs> Five games into a series, the teams have kind of shown you their best. You know, that gives you enough time for each team to have a really great game or two and then struggle. So you know what the deficiencies are. You know 
what you can attack and what you can't. It's obvious to me that the Celtics perimeter players, the three guys in particular, uh, and really four, if you can include Marcus Smart, mm. you know, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Kimball Walker have been just a handful to deal with. Um, it's, it's pushed the Raptors to me to the edge in some areas where they, they may have thought they were better suited, um, but haven't played as well, just haven't been able to find that next gear that they've been able to find for so many nights this year. So it's interesting. I would wonder how much Norman Powell do we see in this mm. next series? Because I think if you're Nick Nurse, in addition to defending and, and coming up with defensive schemes to slow these guys down, you got to find somebody, that X factor, whoever it is, that's going to be inserted into the rotation. That's going to give you a boost that, that Boston wasn't expecting. To me, that's how you extend that series and, and stay alive and try and get to a game seven. For sure. And I think, I think Brad Stevens did a really nice job adjusting yesterday on defense, particularly putting Marcus Smart on Kyle Lowry because Kyle Lowry was dominating Boston the, the previous two games. And, and yesterday he just didn't look the same. And, and, and I also just think too that the Raptors, is, look, I mean, Pascal Siakam has been a focus this series. I think many people thought that this was going to be the year where he takes that next step because he's just been on a constant progression throughout his career. But have we sort of over-expected what we were expecting of Pascal Siakam just because he's moving into this number one role and for many players it takes time to adjust to that number one role after last year where he was more of a supporting player, supporting a guy like Kawhi Leonard and the entire team? I think we've just happened upon a a situation where he's going up against a guy and a particular defender in Jalen Brown who's perfectly suited Mm. to match up with him. You know, a guy who's a little bit shorter than him, but but long, you know, and athletic enough to bother him to get up under him on the defensive end and really play into his body. Jalen Brown's a fantastic defender. It's one of the reasons why he and Jason Tatum, to me, when you talk about young perimeter players in this league that are two-way guys <laughs> that can play both ends. They're as, they're, they're as good as you'll find in terms of guys who can get you 30 and then lock down on the other end on a given night. So I don't, I don't think it's, you know, expectations that were too great for Pascal Siakam. I think he's just run up against the series that, you know, when you're, a, when you're an all-star and a really good player, you can, you know, you can hit a certain point and still perform at the level you're accustomed to. When you're a superstar, you get to that point and then find out, oh, my game goes up another level or two. And he's maybe not reached the point where he can take his game up to that second or third or fourth level you need to, like we saw with Kawhi Leonard, when you're, uh, there are levels to it, you know, to, to stars in this league. And, some guys are dynamic enough now. Their games are developed enough now where they can do that. I think Pascal Siakam is still on that trajectory, but mm-hmm. maybe not, just not at that point yet. And speaking of stars and rising stars in this league, you're you're covering one in the Clippers Nuggets series in Canadian Jamal Murray. And of course, Jamal has been popular, very, very popular north of the border, particularly in the 
Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge area here in Ontario. And he certainly was fantastic in, in the previous series against the Utah Jazz in coming back from, from 3-1 down. Seiko, what have you noticed in, in Jamal's progression in this bubble? Because to me, he's just established himself as an elite scorer in this league. Well, I remember covering them last year. Um, some in their first round series, and then again in in when they got to the conference semifinals against Portland. And he's noticeably bigger, obviously, he's more physical. He's got a little more heft to him. You can tell that. So when I talked to him on on my podcast, on the Hang Time podcast, coming into the bubble, he mentioned that he had gained you know some extra pounds and kind of put on a little more weight to and felt comfortable with an extra 10 to 12 pounds. Felt like it gave him some extra oomph, you know, not necessarily you're trying to get heavier so much as you're trying to get stronger and, and, and build a base that allows you to take some contact and dish some contact out. And, and he's a point guard in, in one sense, but he's also a scoring guard in that he's going to be handling the ball a ton. and then dealing with the other team's best perimeter defender more likely than not. So he's, he's got to be able to dish out some punishment physically and, and absorb some. And I think that's the noticeable difference in him now. Um, I think his shot was just on fire against Utah. He's cooled off a little bit now, but he's playing against much better perimeter defense in what Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and even Patrick Beverly can, can throw at him. Um, the Clippers are – better suited to defend him, I think, obviously, than the Jazz. So it's been interesting watching him pick and choose his spots and, and see what works and what doesn't and how he can function in in high-leverage moments against de- the perimeter defenders who are as accomplished as the Clippers guys are. I think what's amazing to Seku looking at just a bigger picture, and I think this bubble has just shown – the plethora of Canadian basketball talent. Like, you know, you look at Jamal Murray, you look at a guy like Lou Dorr from Montreal, goes undrafted, and then in Game 7, puts on a heck of a performance, even in a losing effort for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and then the news of Steve Nash becoming the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. What do you think it just says about Canadian basketball right now that we're just seeing so many of these guys playing at, at, at such a high level and being so young? I think it's a renaissance, really. Um, and I'll tell you, when I when I felt like it really started, this is strange. I remember seeing... I remember seeing Tristan Thompson playing at uh, school, high school in Las Vegas. Mm. And he was maybe a junior or senior. Maybe, maybe he's a junior. Um, and they were like, yeah, this is one of the top young players, you know, Canadian players. I had never even heard of him, but I was like, wow, you know, like, and you, and then you started recognizing more and more Canadian talents his age or in his age range. And you're like, when when those guys start populating the high school rankings and they start showing up in the top 50s and top, you know, 100 players, and you start recognizing the names and, and you know, you see them all kind of coming as a group, you know, in mass. Like I don't I don't remember Jamal Murray being a guy whose name was on the on top of mind. And then he goes to Kentucky and you kind of go, wow, you know, Murray's, you know, Jamal Murray's not bad. And then John Calipari 
raves about him in the lead up to the draft, you know, you look up four years later and it's like, okay, you know, this, so there's, to me, it's been kind of a movement. Um, they're, they're the generation that grew up with Vince Carter and, and the whole Vince Sanity, you know, movement going on. So they kind of grew up in the shadow of that. I think Canadian basketball has a long history, but maybe not at the NBA level or, or is recognized by NBA fans, but now it's becoming more prevalent. And, and you talked about Steve Nash. He's the guy who moved the, the needle perhaps the greatest because he comes to the NBA and wins two, you know, back-to-back MVPs. That changes the dream for a lot of guys um, with Canadian roots. They're going to look at that and say, all right, there's the example. How do I get to, you know, how do I get to that level? What is the track you have to get on to play in the NBA? And I think it's just, like I said, it's been a steady stream of guys in that, in that one generation that have all migrated up the ranks and, and now so many of them into the league. As I said off the top, you host a podcast called the the, the Hang Time Podcast. You, you said that you had Jamal Murray on the show. You've also had some reporters and broadcasters from the bubble on the show. Kevin Harlan, Taylor Rooks, Jared Greenberg, just to name a few. I'm just curious in those interviews with the broadcasters and reporters that I just mentioned, Sekou, what's been the connective theme for them in terms of embracing and rising to the occasion with this challenge of trying to broadcast and report from the bubble given all of these unique and unprecedented circumstances? I think the the underlying theme for everybody has just been the historical context that this playoffs will be, you know, preserved in. Um, in our business, you know, you're a, you're a chronicler of, this specific sports history. So I think the the journalism student in all of us comes out when you think about, and, and Taylor asked Doc Rivers a fantastic question um, in the aftermath of the players shutting down a couple Wednesdays ago and, you know, and there being a question about whether or not the, this whole thing would go on in the, you know, in the midst of some of the police brutality and social justice issues that were going on at the time. She asked him, what did he want history to say about that moment in time when the players were on the brink of saying, we're packing up and going home? And it was a fascinating question. I thought I asked her about it on, on my podcast. And to me, that, that kind of spoke to what the role of, of all of us here as reporters is. In addition to helping you know, map out yet another playoffs and you know, tell the story of however this championship is won, historically this will be something that everybody will have to put in, in a context for themselves and for their readers or viewers because this is uncharted territory. You know, it's, you, can, you can cover the finals for 70 years, obviously, and never encounter a situation this unique. So it's it's going to give, I think, everybody kind of a, a different canvas to paint when we're talking about where this playoffs and all these moments fit in the larger story of what went on in, in 2020, which for all intents and purposes, whether it's sports or anything else, has been a jaw-dropping year for just 
unprecedented things happen. No doubt. And, and I think it's been, it's been heavy for a lot of people. And I think with this season, I think, you know, you got to obviously showcase the basketball and, and playing in the bubble and the life in the bubble for these players. And you've been hearing players talk about the mental toll it's had on them living in the bubble. But I think you brought up the great point about that can't go unnoticed is the NBA and MBPA agreement for a social justice coalition, arenas becoming voting centers, uh, networks having TV spots for civic engagement. And I just think, look, it's a step. and 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 I think for many people are sort of wondering what happens from the player protests and the player strike from postponing those games. But when you see the Brooklyn Nets open the Barclays Center, when you see the Boston Celtics just today unveiling a $25 million 10-year plan to fight racial injustice, the Toronto Raptors leading the charge in in conversations surrounding anti-black racism and police brutality. This year is historic. And I think this basketball season will forever be historic for what's happening on the court as well as off the court. No question. Um, You know, you think about the history of, you know, this movement, you know, and and what it will be in, in retrospect, you know, because that's what, how you judge it, you know, as we get distance from it, we'll frame it differently and, digest it all differently but the the thing that you just can't shake your head about is this year started with such groundbreaking earth-shattering news for NBA fans David Stern passes away basically to kick off 2020 mm-hmm. as a brain hemorrhage 25 days later if I'm not mistaken not even a full month later Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven other people died in a helicopter crash in LA So you had those two things that rocked the NBA world to kick off 2020. By the time we get done with All-Star Weekend, which, you know, everybody thinks is a chance to kind of breathe, okay, we lost David Stern and Kobe Bryant, two seminal figures in the history of this league, both unexpectedly. You know, never mind the 30-plus year difference in age. They were, you know, nobody expected to lose either one of them. then the pandemic hits. I was in the studio on March 11 with Jerry Greenberg and Sam Mitchell mm-hmm. on set that night. Never, never forget it. March 11th changed everything. And Jerry mentioned that he, he said when we were on the air and it, at the time it, I thought to myself, I see being so dramatic, you know, it's, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'm thinking to myself, like, this is not that big a deal. He's, he, Jared said something to the effect of, you know, the NBA and sports as we know it will never be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, and five months later, you know, when you're making your way here to Orlando to cover this, like I said, this completely, you know, unprecedented playoffs, it it kind of boils up in your mind like, wow, you know, that combination of events has has turned the 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 2020 portion of the 2019 and 20 NBA season into something unto itself. It's, it's a, since January, it has been an unbelievable, just 
tumultuous ride in terms of things that have happened to throw everything off kilter, you know. And I hope by finishing the season here in Orlando in the bubble that crowning a champion puts some sort of normal capper on this NBA season. I've I've given up on 2020, the year itself. (laughs) Outside of basketball. Likewise. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much, you know, losing Chaz Bozeman and all these other things, John Lewis and, you know. Yeah. Lou Brock for baseball fans. You know I mean? Like there's just been one haymaker after another in terms of loss this year, not to mention the millions of people around the world who are struggling in the after economic aftermath and health, you know, aftermath of COVID-19. I mean, it's so 2020 is a wash. I'm just hoping we get through with the basketball season. Somebody holds the Larry O'Brien trophy and somebody gets to exit this year feeling good about what they accomplished. No doubt. And look, I know some people like to say to me, oh, Lucas, this is this is an asterisk season. And, and for me, I just don't buy that because I just think for me, look, every single champion now, you know, 2020 is such an unprecedented year, but every single champion goes through things in, in, in normal times pre-pandemic at that, you know, en route to becoming a champion. And But I think this year, I just think whoever is crowned a champion, it's going to be one of the greatest accomplishments in the sport, just given all of the circumstances and the adversities that they've had to go through, in addition to just going through the playoffs, which is normally a grind for any of the teams that go on to win the Larry LB. So I just don't buy that argument of, of the asterisk just because of that, because Whoever's going to be crowned champions been been in Orlando for almost three months, which is a long time to be in the bubble. Yeah, I, I agree one hundred percent. I've been saying it since since the start when we found out there was going to be a restart and how it was going to be structured. Anybody suggesting that there's an asterisk on this season and that it's a negative thing is not fully comprehending the the lift that it is to come down here and do this. I haven't been here for months like some of these other people. And just a week in quarantine, you could feel the stress and strain of what this is. The the fact that the league has and the and the MBPA and, and the players and everybody agreed to do this and then the planning and the execution that has to come off to do this right is remarkable. I mean, it is stunning to me that they've pulled this off and kept everybody safe and healthy and the games have been as good as they've been. Um, and the logistics have been top flight. I mean, knock on wood, when you think about all the things that could go sideways hmm. to put, you know, to pull this off the way the league has, you know, we're almost to the conference finals and it's been, un- you know, just unbelievable basketball. People are tuning in have talked about it. People that are here have raved about it. People that are playing are shocked by how high quality the level of competition in play is. That tells you that we're not dealing with, you know, an outfit that doesn't understand what this means and how to put on big events. I've said it for years. I think the NBA um, doesn't have a period when it comes to putting on showcase events. You know, the Olympics is about the only other thing I've ever been to 
to me that has that same sort of every single detail is accounted for. Um, you know, so kudos to the league and, and Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts, and Chris Paul, and every all the other people who were key figures in making the decisions and and getting this off the ground because it is truly remarkable. Shifting gears a bit to talk a little bit about your your career, you've you know you've had different stops working in newspapers like the Clarion Ledger, the Indianapolis Star, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and now you're of course NBA.com. You're on TV with NBA TV. You're hosting a podcast. Was the transition from print to digital a challenge? for you at all and what was that process like to now go from writing for a newspaper to now having to do all of these different skills in your journalistic toolbox sure i mean it was a huge challenge um mostly because when i when i was in school i didn't train to do multimedia which is what we basically all do now i i trained to be a, a sports writer like i trained in print journalism. That was my focus. I remember in school, the, the TV station was upstairs school, you know, the newspaper was downstairs. And the only time you cross paths with those people was going in and out of the building. You know, we didn't go upstairs. They didn't come down. It was, it was a very clear line between the disciplines and kind of what you studied. Looking back on it, obviously I wish I'd have done all of it because it turns out 20 years later, you, you know, the fact that you would be versed in all of those things would come in handy. Um, I learned on the job doing TV. Um, I learned from watching a lot of other people do it and trying to figure out what worked and trying to find out how you can be your authentic self and still be effective, um, you know, in that broadcast space. And I think the tenets of what we do, whether it's, you know, on television and in print, um, on a podcast, which didn't exist, obviously, when I was in school and studying. Um, the basics of, you know, the fundamentals of doing all of those things relies on the same things, those same principles of, you know, accuracy, fairness, you know, being a good listener, cultivating sources, um, you know, all those building blocks of how you you become a reporter, writer, slash storyteller. You know, it, it, it doesn't change. Those, you know, those foundational principles don't change over the years. The mediums evolve every day. But um, the job we're doing and, and the stories you're trying to tell accurately and, con, you know, concisely are are always there. It's uh, It's funny that... I remember going to school and I, you know, I had a word processor and I thought I was hot stuff. You know, I was like, man, I got my own word processor. <laughs> you know, nobody had laptops that I'm dating myself, of course, but um, there were no cell phones. I mean, all this technology that has changed the way we do business as journalists, um, social media, come on. There was barely message boards, <laughs> you know, in, in the ni- early nineties. So, I mean, there's, there's been all this change that's come. And, and I think the cool thing is just how adaptable journalists have been throughout these changing times. I mean, it's 
I know some people who are just wildly talented and really, really good at what they do. And they've all entered the business at different stages, different eras necessarily. But you know it when you see it. You, you know, you know effective reporting and writing when you read it, when you when you hear it, when you see it. And I think those things are timeless, no matter what the circumstance, you know when it's being done the right way. Yeah, I mean, that's a very candid answer. And I think it, it leads into my last question for you, Seku, because I think what you're saying is that I think in, in the 21st century and, and in the present day that the barriers to entry aren't as aren't as real as it once was. I think 20, 30 years ago, the path was okay. You, know, you, you go to school, you go to the newspaper, you go through that way to get into the business. Now, many people have been very successful in, in basketball media by not going to journalism school, starting their own podcast, and just learning on the fly and, and, and learning those tenets as well. There's no real silver bullet in order to get into the sports media industry. I mean, we've seen young reporters like Sham Sharania for The Athletic Breaking at a very young age, so many others. I mean, for you, what would be your advice to a young journalist looking to stand out from the crowd, particularly when it comes to the sport of basketball and, and wanting to pursue a career in this business? I think you mentioned Shams. He's a great um, example for young journalists. I, and I saw him this morning as I was <laughs> finishing up my workout. Um, he was eating breakfast by himself in the uh, media dining hall and uh, got a chance to visit him for a second. Uh, you have to have that relentless desire to do this. Like it's not something you do on a whim. You have to be passionate about it like anything else. If you want to be really good at it, you have to be passionate. You have to have a, an absolutely stubborn, you know, discipline to yourself. You know, when somebody tells you you can't do something, that's when you kick in overdrive. When somebody <laughs> says no, that's when you go breaking down doors for the next yes. So, I mean, I think all of those sorts of self-starting motivations, you know, things that you would, you kind of got to have that as the fiber of who you are. You know, you got to be a person who's obviously talented and, and hardworking, but you have to have a, just a relentless desire to do this if you want to stick it out, because there are all sorts of reasons to turn in a different direction in anything that's tough, you know, and this is a very difficult business. Um, I've known a lot of people who are supremely talented, far more talented than anybody I, I know, myself included over the years who didn't stay in this business for one reason or another, whatever their reasoning was. Sometimes it was, they didn't like, you know, the lifestyle, the hours, the, the thankless, job it can be sometimes when you know you think you're busting it and all you catch is criticism from people so I've, I've met and come across so many talented people over the years who wound up not staying in this business for one reason or another and I and I think it's not necessarily the most talented who who thrive and ultimately you know flourish in this business sometimes it's the person who's just most disciplined and has the stamina and the, the will to kind of fight through all of the things that could make you decide to do something different. And if you love it, if you're passionate about it, and I've been passionate about this stuff since before I knew it was what I wanted to do for a living, before I realized 
it was something you could do as a career. Um, that That is what keeps you going through your toughest times. So I, I think anybody young who's trying to break in should, as you said, I mean, you can, you can be a one person NBA reporting machine in this day and age. You know, if you got the guts and, and the work ethic to get out there and hustle and do it. Seku Smith, he's a national basketball writer for NBA.com. He's reporting on the NBA playoffs live from the Orlando bubble. Seku, I know you're really busy, but I really appreciate you taking the time to appear today on the Raptors Endgame podcast on Raptors Republic. Sure, thank you, Lucas. Appreciate you having me. There's no place like home for the holidays or homedepot.com for holiday decor with great low prices on decorations inside and out like artificial Christmas trees to light up the living room, outside lights and playful inflatables that bring joy to the neighborhood. Order online and you'll even get free delivery. Holiday decorating improved with a wide assortment of holiday decor from homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Free standard shipping on most online orders over $45. Some exclusions apply while supplies last. The Home Depot has holiday savings of up to 40% on select appliances, like a Whirlpool four-door French door refrigerator for just $15.98. It's perfect for a busy kitchen full of helping hands. That's where its fingerprint-resistant stainless steel finish really shines. Order online and get free delivery. Holiday appliance shopping improved. Up to 40% off select appliances. Now at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Continental U.S. only. Wasp last. Valid through December 2nd. Free delivery on orders $396 or more.